Good morning, folks, and thank you for tuning in to the Global Current on 89.5 FM WSOU, the Seton Hall School of Diplomacy and International Relations weekly podcast. This is your host, Jasmine DeLeon. Today, we're bringing you a special episode covering last week's riots at the U.S. Capitol in Washington, D.C. On January 6, 2021, thousands of pro-Trump demonstrators violently stormed the U.S. Capitol building. The rioters, spurred by President Trump at a rally earlier that morning, sought to halt Congress's certification of Joe Biden's 2020 election victory. Five people died, including a Capitol Police officer and four protesters. Joining us to discuss last week's events are three experts from the Seton Hall community. First up is Dr. Joseph Huddleston, an assistant professor in the Seton Hall School of Diplomacy and International Relations and founder of the Diplo Lab, a collaborative research space in the School of Diplomacy. Good morning, Dr. Huddleston. Well, hello, everyone. Our second guest is Dr. James Kimball. Dr. Kimball is a professor of communications at Seton Hall University. He is an expert on domestic propaganda and has written several books on the subject. Thank you for joining, Dr. Kimball. Good morning. Thank you for having me here. And our final guest is Professor John H. Shannon, a professor of legal studies in Seton Hall's Stillman School of Business. He specializes in the issues and challenges propelled by digital transformation and their impact on the established order in business, law, and society. Welcome, Professor Shannon. Greetings, Jasmine. Starting with you, Dr. Huddleston, your research is on international responses to civil and interstate conflicts. For the purpose of understanding the terms we're using in this episode, how do you define terrorism? So you have unwittingly asked one of the stickiest definition questions in probably all of political science. Um, this, it, it's, it's ridiculous how much we write and talk and think about how to draw the lines around this, this term. Why do we do it? Because it's a highly powerful and also highly stigmatized term, right? So governments, activist groups, everyone wants to use this term to sort of label their rivals and enemies. So it means that we've had to be really careful how we think about it. So there's probably I can name a hundred different definitions that show up in the literature and government documents places like that. But, but there's really four elements that are common to nearly all definitions of terrorism. And those are, uh, the first is the use of violence or the threat of violence, right? So if either of those are present, either of those need to be present for it to be called terrorism. The second is that you have some kind, you're, you're targeting either civilian targets or public targets, such as legislators, in, in the case we might be talking about, or sometimes we include property destruction as well, although that's not always included. Um, the third is that you need to have some kind of evidence of political goals that the people using violence um, entertain, uh, that there, there needs to be uh, some kind of stated goal. Um, and then finally, a strategy of sowing fear to get towards those goals. It's not just about the commitment of violence, it's about a public act of communication to a target audience, right? So, but, so not all definitions have all of those ingredients, but any respectable definition of terrorism is gonna have at least three of them and usually all four. So I'll, I'll say that again. So you're targeting innocent lives to compel some kind of political goal. You're using violence and your goal is to use fear to compel. President-elect 
Joe Biden stated in reference to the people who stormed the Capitol that they weren't protesters. In remarks in Wilmington, Delaware last Thursday, he said that they were a riotous mob, insurrectionists, domestic terrorists. It's that basic, it's that simple, end quote. In your professional opinion, do you consider the riots and actions that took place in D.C. domestic terrorism based on this definition that you provided? So the funny thing about what Biden said uh, last week was that he didn't even know the whole story at this point. The week since then, the amount we have learned about the plans that some of these people present had, put it not just like edging up to the definition of terrorism, but deep into that definitional territory, right? You had people there whose stated intentions were to take hostages. Um, some of the more extreme plans that have been investigated online now included ex public executions of legislators, including Mike Pence, right? Because the idea there was that if they interrupted this process, then there's this chaos, there's the grounds for the president to declare a state of emergency and you know take extra constitutional powers, right? So so all of this was present. So it's it's very it's very it's definitely right to say that there were terrorists present, right? Now that said, not everyone who who gathered there had all of these ideas in mind. A lot of people are there because they believe that the election was fraudulent. They believe the words that come out of Donald Trump. They believe, they believe it when other politicians repeat these, these lies and repeat, you know, sort of sow this doubt in, in our electoral institutions, right? So you, you have a sort of continuum of, of bad will among the people there. Some people who are there because they actually legitimately believe that American democracy is under threat from this election. Right. Um, I, I'm not going to say anything about about actually I should leave it to, to Dr. Kimball to talk about this because he's the propaganda expert here. Right. But that's that some people are more, quote unquote, innocent in terms of their motives there. But but some uh, that those who stormed the Capitol were breaking windows, were, were trying to get in fights with police officers, all of that. Yeah, they fall. They definitely fall within this term. Hey, um, how have other members of the international community, such as China and Russia, for example, responded to the riots in D.C.? Or how do you think they should respond? So it's not a surprise to, to any person in international relations that um, the Russian and Chinese governments have looked at this as just this like, golden opportunity to sort of make democracy look bad to their own constituents, right? It's long been the case that the Chinese government has told its citizens, you don't want democracy. It's unstable. It hurts markets. It's bad for development. It's chaotic. You never know where it's going to go. You give power to the people and you just never know where it's going to go. Much better to just sort of, and you know, just vest all that authority in us, a strong government, with much less accountability, it'll work out better for everyone. This looks great for them, right? They're going to use they're going to use the chaos at the Capitol as a sort of you know a picture to point people to. As far as how international actors should respond to it, well, there's kind of two ways to think about that. I think there's the domestic picture, right? So what should let's just talk about our European friends, right? European governments looking at the United States, how can they respond to American domestic politics? 
the truth is there's not a lot they can do there, but there are lessons they can learn, right? There in, in last fall, there were big protests in, in Berlin that were against pandemic precautionary uh, measures by the government. And there was mostly, it was mostly right-wing extremists running those, right? This right-wing extremism problem that sort of, you know, bubbled up and, you know, surprised everyone and actually made it all the way into the, the chambers of Congress, right? There's potential for this all over the world right now. So they can look at this and say, you know, We've been downplaying how big of a risk we think these kinds of extremist groups are. It's very evident that the activities we see, the, the bad rhetoric we see online, it can become real violence, right? Real violence in the, in the streets of our capitals. And every government should be looking at this and have some kind of uh, have plans to prevent and deal with this as it, as it develops. Piggybacking on that idea of influencing people through rhetoric and in the digital realm, Dr. Kimball, your specialization is in domestic propaganda and the way it helps to construct a rhetorical community for rhetoric and visual imagery. To ensure that our audience understands what you mean by this term, how do you define propaganda? Well, propaganda is a pretty loaded term, Jasmine, so I think it's important that we right away establish what it means. And I probably should preface any definition by saying that uh, it's a controversial term. Um, so, you know, in propaganda circles, it's pretty com commonly said that one person's information is your enemy's propaganda and vice versa. And there's a good reason for that. Uh, we tend to use propaganda, the term, uh, as this uh, stone that we throw at others while believing that we are innocent of using it because our motives are just. Um, and our opponents think the exact same thing of us. And so I prefer to go with a more neutralist uh, oriented definition of propaganda that takes us away from content and ideology and leaves those debates at another level. So with that in mind, what, how I define propaganda is that propaganda is a persuasive message that typically has at least one of the following three characteristics, and usually all three. It's mediated, it's systematic in some way, and it's institutional uh, to a degree. Um, and I'll unpack those just a little bit more. Um, so by mediated, I don't necessarily mean the broadcast media. Um, I could see a poster as being a kind of media or a megaphone. Uh, but in other words, there's some intermediary transmission between the source and the target um, that would satisfy that definition of it being mediated. But you and I sitting in a room talking to each other um, arguably does not fit uh, that criterion of, of mediation. That it's systematic uh, can mean that it's repeated. Think uh, an advertisement that you see dozens of times during the, the Super Bowl, for instance or uh, a poster run during a war where hundreds of thousands of uh, uh, prints are, are uh, come out of, coming out of the presses. Uh, so repeated in some way, systematic in some way. And finally, institutional. And here I have to put a little bit of an asterisk uh, based on our discussion today, because what I usually mean by that is that an individual probably can't produce propaganda. Um, so you could be a propagandist, but you're ordinarily propagandizing on behalf of an organization of some sort. So the word propaganda itself comes from the Catholic Church in the 17th century. 
and it was uh, used originally uh, to, uh, with the idea that you're uh, proselytizing, that you're spreading the word into new areas. Uh, that there was a, a, an organization called the Propaganda Defeat. Um, and of course, it's become a much more uh, negatively oriented term these days, but that essential notion is still there, that there's a larger organization behind it. So it's usually institutional. The asterisk that I mentioned, though, uh, and this is perhaps uh, prefacing the question that you might ask in a second, which is, can the presidency, can an individual who is the president uh, meet this criterion? And I would argue probably yes. You know, uh, Donald Trump 10 years ago, uh, who is a wealthy business person, is probably very different in terms of the reception that he gets uh, via Twitter than Donald Trump, president of the United States. And so I would say yes, if the president is using Twitter and is using it systematically, it's obviously mediated, that that would meet my definition of propaganda. Jennifer Greigel, an assistant professor of communication at Syracuse University and an expert on social media, stated in a recent article that what happened this week is the product of four years of systematic propaganda from the presidency. So as you just addressed before, can you please walk us through your thought process? You know, has President Trump expressed propaganda sentiments on his social media platforms? And what do you think the effect of this is? Well, I would say that it's uh, arguably meets my particular version and definition of propaganda, my understanding of that notion. Um, but remember that my idea of propaganda um, tries to separate us from judging the content of the propaganda. So I think there's a real temptation, and I understand that temptation, to look at the nature, the content, the arguments, whatever you want to call them, that come out in the president's tweets and say, this is propaganda. And of course, the root of that judgment is because I, from my ideology, don't like it. I think it's dangerous and so on. But that needs to be, I believe, a separate judgment from whether or not it is propaganda based on the definition that uh, I've argued. Now, that doesn't mean that I approve uh, in, in uh, my nature of what uh, he has said, you know, this idea that the election is contested, that there was all sorts of cheating. Um, I think there's some pretty good evidence to, to counter that, um, but I don't think that makes it more or less propagandistic. Um, now, you asked a, a follow-up question there uh, toward the end, which is what is the effect of all of this? And in some ways, I think you could make the argument that it's pretty disastrous. Um, and we saw some strong evidence of that, not only last Wednesday, but on the hints that there could be future violence. Um, I think most of us agree that democratically oriented discourse ought to be free of not only violence, but threats of violence. Um, it simply isn't how you proceed when you are in a democratically oriented um, organization. And so the idea that some of these tweets uh, flirted with the idea of domestic terrorism or encouraging people to be violent, to show up at the Capitol, it's going to be wild, uh, to in the speech, so now moving beyond uh, Twitter, encouraging people to head down to the Capitol and, and uh, uh, seize your rights, make them see. Um, all of that is arguably pretty dangerous. Um, it doesn't make it more or less propagandistic to me, but it certainly makes me pretty shocked, and I think it's, it was rather unfortunate. 
How does propaganda spread and influence people on social media platforms and their news feeds? It's really insidious uh, in a lot of ways. Um, propaganda has a real negative reputation and for good reason. You know, it's been used, especially in wartime, for generations uh, in really awful, disastrous ways. Um, but it, there's some big differences today. Now that we have, you know, we're in this era of social media, you can spread propaganda at uh, levels that are exponentially faster, uh, exponentially broader in your reach for an audience. Um, and perhaps even more insidiously, social media, for the most part, enables you to craft an echo chamber. Uh, where you can self-select toward a particular audience uh, that you're broadcasting to and that is in return broadcasting to you, uh, even as you self-select away from those who disagree with you. And so you end up not with a sense of uh, public discourse where all of these different perspectives are working uh, within a, a larger conversation, but these parallel streams that don't collide with each other uh, and thus grow stronger and um, seem more and more true to those people. So how does it spread? It is exponential in its reach, uh, in its, in its uh, how fast it can be, and it also establishes this sense of self-selection where all you hear is what you want to hear and you don't hear your opponents. And that's really disastrous for public discourse. So, okay. Professor Huddleston wants to yeah, come. Yeah, I, I just wanted to add one thing, which is that uh, it's, it's even a little bit worse than that because people don't even know that they're self-selecting into a bubble, right? right? Because of the way these algorithms work on Facebook and Twitter and other social media, they, they think that they're getting a complete picture, but they're actually sliding into a bubble. They have no idea about it. Well put, exactly. I totally agree. Yeah, it's, it's the business model. It's the algorithm that's doing it and, and, uh, and that's the great challenge because the, the the algorithm is a black box and you can't nobody knows what it, it how it's written what it's written what it's doing uh, you know to your point uh, jim in the run-up to the election facebook let's say changed the algorithm a bit and suddenly we weren't getting all of the crazy stuff that had been at the top 10 most you know trending issues uh, and as soon as the election was over, they they turned that little switch and we're back to, to more of the same. So, yeah, it, it's it's a it's a real threat, frankly. Um, Absolutely. Professor, Professor Shannon, you said that Facebook changed the, the algorithm. What specifically did they do? Well, that's one of the great challenges, Jasmine. We don't know because we don't know how the algorithm works. Um, you know the 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 business model of uh, all of the social media companies is based on uh, revenue generated by advertising, and advertising is a uh, is a is a wonderful thing, uh, but it's also insidious because in order to sell more ads and therefore gain more revenue, you need more eyeballs and more clicks, and it, there's no question. Uh, you know, there's plenty of studies out there that that demonstrate that the more outrageous the content, the more likely you are to wa read it, watch it, click it, 
and go on to the next thing. Um, and, you know, the, what's called the recommendation engine for all of these is that once one of these social media companies has got a profile of you, which means basically if, if you're on the web, they have a profile, um, whether you like it or not, whether you have an account or not. Facebook, in fact, generates what they call shadow profiles. If you're not a Facebook user, they still track you on the Internet using a variety of of, uh, of, of digital identifications. Uh, so once they've done that, you know, if if the three of us uh, who are are regular having regular conversations about these issues is now been joined by a, a very astute uh, interviewer, um, if if Facebook becomes aware of that, now the three of us will inform, at least in part, your profile, who you are, what your interests are, etc. And so you may begin to see um, content uh, recommended to you that is not something you've ever thought of, but you've had a conversation with, um, with the three of us and we have profiles and we have interests. Um, you know, Facebook admitted they did a they did a presentation in Germany on radicalization in 2016, where they admitted that, and I want to, I don't, the number is north of 70 percent uh, of the uh, of the individuals who were radicalized were where literally that occurred because of recommendations from the Facebook algorithms. So that would suggest and. You know, if, if you leave on autoplay uh, in YouTube, you know, and you start out looking for a recipe for oatmeal cookies, you could find yourself fairly quickly down a rabbit hole of white supremacy or Nazi propaganda or porn, all of which flows from that recommendation engine. And because it's proprietary, meaning Facebook owns it, and it's not quite a trade secret, but it is protected under their intellectual property rights. They don't have to show it to us. Uh, and so no one knows really what it's doing or how it's doing. All we know is that the point of the exercise is for it to show us more stuff, more outrageous stuff that then keeps us on the site. We then see more and more advertisements related to these things. So it's been reported by numerous sources that the rioters use social media like Twitter and Parler to plan for what we saw happen. Is what you're saying is that social media creates and brings together these communities because of the recommendation algorithm? Yes, actually. Think of it this way. In my youth, which was in the early Middle Ages, if you wanted to encourage others to engage in your ideas, you could write something uh, or you could get on a soapbox, the, you know, the old fashioned literal soapbox in the town square. So if I wanted to convince the citizens of South Orange about an idea that I had, I would literally take my soapbox, I'd put it down in front of a Starbucks on Sloan Street and I would begin to promote my idea. Now, good news, bad news, the only people that would hear that were the people that were within hearing distance of where I was standing. You know, once we got to a point where we had 
pamphlets. We could produce a pamphlet, and now I'm starting to dip right into to Jim's expertise, but we would produce pamphlets. You know, Thomas Paine is probably one of the most well-known pamphleteers of, in American history. So, you know, the good news is though, that there was limitations that my ideas, however good, bad, or indifferent, weren't viral. They could not suddenly get a following all over the globe. And what's happening today is that the person who believes uh, that the end of the world is tomorrow can create a Facebook group and invite and encourage, and Facebook through its recommendation engine will encourage others from all over the world who believe the end of the world is tomorrow, whether it really is or it isn't. And then you begin to advertise to those folks. You know, you design your advertisement so that it is directed, I think it was, Joe, did you say bubble? The bubble. And and so we all, to one degree or another, now live in some sort of an information bubble. And that's created the circumstances that we find ourselves in right now. We have somewhere near 74 million Americans that think the election was fraudulent. Yet we've got about 80 some million that think that's ridiculous. And the folks that think it isn't ridiculous decided to go on a rampage in the Capitol building on January 6th. On January 6th, in response to the riots, Twitter and Facebook locked President Trump's accounts. Do you agree or disagree with these actions? No, I, I agree with it. I think it was the right decision. I think the only thing that has, that's not true, several things that have prevented them from doing it earlier. First among those is the fact that he's the president of the United States. And that gives him standing in, in that environment that he might not otherwise enjoy if any of the four of us did some of the things that Mr. Trump did on Twitter in the last five years, not only would we be deplatformed, my guess is we might have been arrested for something. You know, his, his actions, his tweets, his rallies, his speeches, literally going back to 2015, culminated in that incitement of insurrection on January 6th. So uh, the threat of violence was what finally put these these companies, these platforms over the edge, and they said, time to turn him off. And something that has come up um, in that history is the idea of the First Amendment. So Amazon, Apple, and Google booted Parler, which is a social networking app that rioters and protesters use to organize the riots in DC from its platforms. The chief executive of Parler accused Amazon of trying to remove free speech from the internet. Can you please explain how the First Amendment fits into the story? How many hours do you have? I, let me say this. All three of those companies that you named, as well as Facebook, Snapchat, and others, have deplatformed Parler. All have invoked violations of their terms of service as justification of their actions. And in any time somebody, something happens like this, the First Amendment is invoked basically every time a platform decides to apply its standards as they are articulated in their terms of service. Now, good news, bad news, those standards are fluid is probably a good way of putting it. The critical factor though is that in terms of First Amendment, 
issues is that the companies are all privately owned. They're not government entities. The relationship between the, the platforms and their users is contractual. The First Amendment protects us from government action. Where the government acts to infringe on our speech rights, among others, the Constitution will protect us. So if, for instance, in the middle of this conversation, you know, Jim's invocation of President Trump as a propagandist, if we were in China, we would already be shut down because those communications are monitored by the Chinese government. So in the United States, it requires the government to take those positions, and then I can invoke the First Amendment. But disagreements about these terms of service aren't constitutional, they're contractual. This is a question for the three of you. Uh, there's a lot of discourse as to whether President Trump is responsible for the actions of the rioters and protesters on Capitol Hill. And this week he was impeached by the House. What are your thoughts on this action? I just want to point to Congresswoman Liz Cheney's comments on this, because she is the third ranking Republican in the House of Representatives. And her statement was so strong and curt and cogent. Uh, I don't have the quote in front of me, but it was it communicated this message. Were it not for Trump's actions, this would never have happened, right? He told people to assemble in the Capitol. He held a rally. At that rally, he told them to go to the Capitol building. And, you know, he's very good at tiptoeing this sort of red line of incitement. And he did it there too. He said, we want to show strength to weak Republicans, right? Whatever that means, right? To a very raucous, angry crowd. So as Congresswoman Cheney said, he could have stopped it, he didn't. He could have told him to stop once it had begun. He didn't do that either. And were it not for him as a presence on the political scene, this never would have happened. I'll agree with uh, Professor Huddleston here. I, I will say that ultimately this will be decided, you know, either in the courts or in the Congress or in whatever uh, body is most appropriate for it. But nonetheless, at least from an argumentative perspective, uh, based on you know the argumentation uh, research and classes that I teach, um, what this comes down to is not strict causality, but more of a but-for argument. Had President Trump not said X, then Y was very unlikely to have occurred. And so, but for his comments, we probably wouldn't have had that riot. And that's a good enough standard, I think, for a lot of courts, but we'll have to see how that plays out. I would agree. I think he's responsible for inciting his supporters to engage in that insurrection on the 6th. If you go back and review his rhetoric since 2015, you're going to find numerous examples of uh, incitement of violence. Uh, at his rallies, in his speeches, in his tweets. And I think it's important, and, and Professor Kimball may want to throw in something here, but frequently propaganda is most effective in the moment. It's the excitement of the crowd. It's the, because they're not really hearing every word a person says when they're in a rally like that or at one of his rallies in a, in a large venue. But if you go back and read the comments, the rhetoric, uh, rather than just listen, I mean, if you listen, it's, it's bad enough. But if you read the rhetoric of Mr. Trump and the other speakers, Mo Brooks, 
Donald Jr. Um, and, and Rudy Giuliani, it was clearly incendiary. And I think at a minimum hoped for the outcome that was achieved. And quite frankly, you know, I think it's probably intentional, which means I think the but for argument is very strong there. I'll, I'll chime in uh, based on uh, what Professor Shannon uh, had to say there, because uh, I agree, you know, these sorts of comments at the rally before uh, the riot were based more in emotions, what Aristotle would have called our, uh, appeals to pathos rather than appeals to logos or argumentation or, or logic. And you're right, in the moments, those absolutely can overrule your common sense. And I don't think it's any accident that we see some of these folks who made it into the Capitol who are saying, that was a mistake, that was the worst decision I've ever made. But at the moment, they weren't really thinking logically. They were riled up. And we know where that riling up came from, from that list of speakers. And I think to your point, if you watch the video, you see the crowd in some instances, you know, asking someone with a, a mobile, what's President Trump want us to do next? Or, you know, there's that, the, that one video, they're literally, as they're beating a cop, chanting, we're invited here. The president told us to come here. I think over time, next several weeks and months, uh, what we're going to learn is that there's going to be a whole lot more evidence uh, that's going to point to a finding that that this was a uh, uh, an incitement to insurrection, and quite frankly, it's it's sedition. I mean, at the end of the day, that's what we've got here. It's sedition. And if you read the statute, not that I want to pretend to be a lawyer like I play one on TV, um, but if you read the sedition statute, they're all in trouble. Uh, to a greater or lesser degree. And, and I think Professor Kimball said this earlier, you know, the, the folks that were on the grounds but didn't do anything, you know, you see a bunch of elderly people, frequently you'll see a police officer trying to shield an elderly person in the midst of the crowd and the cop is getting beat up just to protect this nice little old lady that wasn't doing anything except standing there. So you'll see people that are charged with trespass right up to being charged with uh, seditious conspiracy. Um, and, and by the way, a charge of seditious conspiracy, if you're found guilty, is a significant fine and up to 20 years in prison. So now we are moving on to our final question. On January 20th, Joe Biden will take office as the 46th president of the United States. Based on each of your fields of expertise, what is one recommendation you have for the incoming administration based on problems exposed by these protests? So the, the most important thing is already well underway, and that is the law enforcement element of this, mm -hmm. right? Um, and, you know, in international relations, we often talk about the concept of deterrence, right? If you do this, I will do this, right? So. A, a message to to people who have slid down these conspiracy rabbit holes, if they're thinking like, no matter what the president says, or no matter what this person says, if I do this kind of trespassing, I'm liable for that action, right? The more everyone knows that, the better. And the more people know that uh, this is terrorism and our government has a very strong position against this kind of activity, 
and are, regardless of how angry they are with the government, they're not willing to take violent actions against the government. The, the more that people know that, the better. So, you know, right now, legislators have admitted that they are afraid of people coming after them if they don't vote a certain way, right? That's a sign that terrorism is working. That's the whole point. So there needs to be a sort of across the board admission that this is one of the biggest security threats in our country in this time and domestically in other countries as well. And there needs to be a policy agenda paired with that, right? That's gonna go through all the federal law enforcement offices down to the local level law enforcement. And you know, just as one last aside, I might say, there are police officers who are implicated in this crime from all over the country. The police chief of Houston was there, right? Uh, uh, there's a few police officers from Virginia who are there, they've been arrested, right? So there also needs to be a systematic internal investigation of law enforcement offices looking for ties to these kinds of, of right-wing extremist groups, right? If you're often, when you're getting a security clearance, you're often asked about foreign ties, right? Perhaps the federal government should start adding questions about ties to domestic extremist groups to that same list of sort of what connections there are between an applicant and these kinds of elements in our society. Well, I agree with what Professor Huddleston uh, proposed there. I have a, a different idea that I think they work could work well together. Um, it occurs to me that you know, in the years to come that we will all be able to say to our children and get grandchildren where we were when uh, the riots or the insurrection at the Capitol took place. This is, for this generation, a pretty big event, perhaps on a par with the assassination of JFK. And in response to that huge and traumatic event, we had the Warren Commission. It may well be that we, uh, the new incoming administration, uh, needs to put the wheels in motion to establish a new commission. And I would encourage it, if it exists, uh, to look at the role and the power of social media that really needs to be looked into. I'm not a Luddite, uh, I use social media myself, but a lot of this happened because that profit motive has become so overpowering as Professor Shannon was talking about. It's put us in places where we should not be as a democracy. We've endangered ourselves in some ways. And so whether we can establish some system of checks and balances uh, so that these various social media platforms are competing in ways that keep them in check, I don't know what the solution may be, but there really needs to be someone looking into this, and I would encourage them to do that in a, at a formal level. If I may, Professor Shannon, in the discourse about limiting the power of social media companies, some people have suggested data mining, dismantling these companies altogether, and fixing the algorithm like we talked about before. What are some laws that regulate or limit the power and influence of these companies, and do you think that these laws are enough? They're not enough? Uh, no, I don't think they're enough. There aren't as many as we might think. <clears throat> Excuse me. One of the great challenges is that we really don't regulate the tech industry very much. Section 230 of the Computer Decency Act was passed uh, in large part to protect tech platforms like Google and Facebook, et cetera, to, from being sued into oblivion. 
So the 230 provides uh, liability protection for these platforms for third-party content. The real reason for 230, though, was to give the platforms the elbow room to moderate their content properly, as opposed to, in fact, the position that they've taken, which is, you know, uh, oh my God, we can't moderate content. Um, and, and that's one of the great fallacies about 230. So you're going to hear a whole lot more about 230. In fact, uh, there was a push to repeal 230 before the election. Uh, Senator Hawley being one of the main proponents of that. Had that been the case, uh, all of these folks would have been cut off social media immediately. One of the great lawsuits is Dominion's lawsuit, the election uh, hardware company has sued Sidney Powell, one of President Trump's attorneys, for a billion three for defamation. Uh, and I expect that that will continue with OAN and Newsmax and Fox News and et cetera. You know, I think the, the thing we keep missing in this, Jasmine, is that the tech industry is, is really mature enough to find itself facing serious regulation. We don't accept well, we have done more recently, I suppose, but we really don't accept the pollution of our water and our air. Uh, we don't allow people who violate traffic laws by speeding or driving under the influence. Uh, I mean, when they do that, we take away, and it's severe enough, we take away their driving privileges. You know, we regulate securities fraud. I mean, if we believe that a business activity is dangerous, inappropriate, um, or doesn't advance the interests of the commons, meaning all of us, we regulate it. You know, the difference, the challenge here is that we're in an era of exponential change. You know, the law does not move quickly. You know, the Sidney Powell lawsuit is probably going to be resolved unless it's settled. It's going to go to trial. That may be three years from now. And by the time it gets through the appellate process to the Supreme Court, which is where I am sure it's going to go, if that's the case, it may be four or five years. And our Congress is sort of tied up with a bunch of other stuff right now. And on top of that, it's better today than it was two years ago, even. But we're not talking about very many representatives in legislatures or executive branches or the courts that are what I would call robustly digitally literate. And so, uh, you know, one of the great questions when they were interviewing Zuckerberg a couple of years ago, I think it was Senator Hatch asked him how he made money if he didn't sell anything. I mean, just clueless. So I think Biden's greatest challenge is gonna be managing the multiple crises that he's facing. And because I, I think that the lack of a shared set of facts uh, the misinformation, the disinformation, and to Professor Kimball's point, uh, the role that media, both traditional and social, play in that space. Uh, you know, the, the Constitution isn't a suicide pact. Unless you're <clears throat> a purist, which I don't think any of us really are, we can develop a regulatory environment that can get this under control. You know, in the 80s, we repealed what was called the Fairness Doctrine, which required broadcasters 
to present both sides of an issue. I mean, the, the rise of uh, alternate facts media started in the mid to late 80s. So uh, here we are. Uh, I think the Constitution isn't a suicide pact needs to be the title of, of this episode. <laughs> I'll go with that. I'll go with that. All right, that is a wrap. Dr. Huddleston, Dr. Primble, and Professor Shannon, thank you so much for coming on to our show for this special episode. To the what? listeners out there, oh, thank you. To the listeners out there, please be sure to follow The Global Current on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for updates on upcoming shows. This show could not be made possible without executive producer Jarrett Dang, assistant producer Joaquin Matimis, technical producer Brittany Segura, and assistant technical producer Jason Marieski. I'm your host, Jasmine DeLeon, keeping it current, filling in for Valentina Oriana. The Global Current is brought to you by the School of Diplomacy and International Relations at Seton Hall University. Be sure to tune in every Sunday at 7.30 a.m. Eastern Time on 89.5 FM WSOU. Thank you for tuning in. Okay.